This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Dick Batchelor is a former Democratic state lawmaker. He's the founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Dick, thanks for coming back. Good to be back. Thank you. We're also joined by Frank Torres, Republican political analyst. Frank, thank you as well for joining us. Always good to be here. Well, let's begin with CPAC. The Conservative Political Action Conference is in Orlando at the convention centre. Organisers chose a state that's, let's say, distinctly more pro-opening despite the ongoing pandemic than some other states. It'll also be the first major public speech for former President Donald Trump since he left office. Uh, Frank, I want to start with you. I mean, what does it mean for Florida that what's known as the Super Bowl of conservative politics is being held in the city beautiful? Well, you know, I feel, you know, two different ways about it. On one hand, I'm certainly happy for the economic development. You know, CPAC is a win for the convention district during a very difficult time. On the other hand, well, you know, it's a little bit divisive. Um, I was hoping to, uh, to see kind of a new beginning or a, a, a push in a new direction um, after we just lost the, the presidential race. Instead, we're just we're going back to the president, and, you know, it's, it's just a sign of how strong his popularity has maintained and how influential he still is um, despite losing the election and uh, all the, the problems the administration had in the, in the final days. Indeed. I mean, and, and we talked about this uh, at the end of last year, kind of casting ahead to what we might expect for 2021. This is the first major appearance for Trump since he was found not guilty in a second impeachment trial as well. Uh, are you expecting him to touch on that in his speech uh, coming up on Sunday? You know, Matt, it wouldn't surprise me at all if this guy just declared that he was just going to run again in a couple of years at this weekend. It really wouldn't surprise me at all. I think, you know, this is going to be his crowd, you know, his um, his following. It's going to be in Orlando. He kicked off his last campaign here in Orlando in the heart of the I-4 corridor, and he won the state. So I'm not going to rule anything out as far as what this guy is going to say. And, uh, you know, I just hope that um, it's something positive and and certainly something peaceful, because I I think that's in the back of all of our minds of what we saw in Washington last month is that we don't want any of that here in Orlando. Dick Batchelor, we haven't spoken on this show, at least since before the impeachment trial. I wanted to just touch on that for a moment. Did the impeachment managers drop the ball on calling witnesses? No, I don't think so. I think they made their case. They knew they didn't have the votes, but it needed to be... Uh, recorded in the history books that there was a second impeachment inside the House, there was a trial, it had, they had to establish a record. I think they did a, a good job. But if I, I'd like to comment on the upcoming CPAC conference, I think it's going to be like the Republican Woodstock of the South, right? It's going to be like all the sacrifice. You're going to have, you know, Ted Cruz is going to give a speech, Senator Hodder is going to give a speech, Lindsey Graham is going to give a 10 minute speech. And I would assume that the, the Senators would show up and get his ordainment for uh, if he wants to run, because he'd be running against Donald Trump if he was going to run in four years. Uh, but anyway, so it's going to be an interesting get-together. The, the fascinating thing to be is Trump's always already declared war on Mitch McConnell, the Senate now minority leader. And uh, now, he, so all these senators uh, appearing with Trump are going to basically kind of stake their claim with Trump and really – uh, inference by inference in opposition to Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. You've got the two parties vying to control which who's going to control the Republican Party. Is it Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party, or is it uh, Donald Trump? Is he going to basically take over the Republican Party? And that's what Mitch McConnell's afraid of. So they, the politics intra facility or intra intra party to me is a very fascinating. Now, if 
Trump runs again in 2024, what happens to those presidential ambitions for either Governor DeSantis or, or any of the others? What do you think about that? I guess what they're trying to do is cultivate his base in case he doesn't run. In order to do that, you just got to be seen with him as often as possible, get a lot of optics going, a lot of photo narratives going on. So in case he doesn't run, maybe he will ordain you. So they're all like, they're all trying to demonstrate to Trump, if he doesn't run, he should ordain one of them to run. I think unless, uh, barring a health reason, he's going to run again. And uh, if he decides to run again, I think he's going to clear the entire field. I think everybody's going to get out of the way except for maybe one or two uh, stragglers. And those stragglers that don't get out of the way will probably uh, be defeated pretty soundly. Uh, but we're going to have to look at some of the factors. We're going to have to look at his health. We're going to have to look at, um, at the direction the, uh, the, the country is going to be going in. There's typically a midterm backlash or a midterm drop that, that happens with almost every presidential administration. We'll see mm-hmm. how the Biden administration handles that uh, in a couple of years. And then we'll just uh, have to see what the rest of the field looks like and, and, and all the other developments that's going on. But if he decides he's going to run again, he's going to be the front runner, certainly, and then the primary he has. And um, we're going to see what his next campaign or what his next message looks like and how effective it will be with the voters. Is this, a, is this a kind of a watershed moment, Frank, for the Republican Party? Like, do you see a new party emerging or do you see them changing course at all and maybe shedding some of the elements of the Trump message and, and mantra that some Republicans have found, found pretty distasteful over the last four years? You know, that's a good question, but the answer is no. I mean, he's, he's going to be the keynote speaker at CPAC right here in Orlando, and you know, it's going to be a, a campaign rally feel until the, the party decides that they want to go in a different direction. They're not going to go in a different direction. And, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of moderates and a lot of Republicans that might not feel excited for what, about what they saw from Trump during the last few months in office. And, you know, I mean, it's going to be a decision to make. And, and that's how votes are lost. So, I mean, we'll have to see what the president has to say what his message is going to be moving forward and how the rest of the party lines up behind him. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen any signals whatsoever that there's going to be a change of direction. You're listening to Intersection on WMFE. I'm Matthew Petty. We're speaking with political analysts Frank Torres and Dick Batchelor. Let's pivot to federal politics and how they impact the state of Florida for a moment. Orlando is one of the sites for a federal vaccination centre in Florida. The announcement for that was preempted by Governor DeSantis last week. Uh, Frank Torres, what's going on here with uh, DeSantis kind of getting out with the message ahead of the uh, federal government itself? Is there some political gamesmanship and does that have some impact on the working relationship between Florida and the federal government? Uh, I think it attacks sort of all angles. I think DeSantis is under the microscope for his leadership on this uh, vaccination process, as well as the Biden administration. And Everybody's going to try to get out in front of this message, um, but it doesn't make a difference if the if the rollout doesn't go as planned on naturally mass vaccination uh, sites for, you know, four major markets, that's great news. Really, from, from any sort of political perspective you have, um, the fact that we're going to get four of these, um, these locations here in Florida, that, uh, you know, it's hard to, to really oppose that in any direction. And I believe every single politician from 
municipal office in Orlando, from city commission, all the way up to the White House, need to get behind pandemic recovery for uh, for this year. Mm-hmm. Or else we're all going to get left behind and a lot of people are going to get hurt. One of the goals that President Biden talked about was 100 million COVID-19 vaccinations in the first 100 days. So we're about one third of the way into that first 100 days. Uh, I mean, things are a little different, right? It's it's, uh, it's a different tone and feel from the White House. Um, when you look at how some of those goals are shaping up, what's your read on that, um, Dick Batchelor? Well, first of all, as you alluded to, President Biden said that he would give 100 million, be sure that 100 million vaccinations were put in the arms of people in the first 100 days. He will uh, exceed that, and now he's made a commitment by July, 300 million, actually 600 million doses, 300 million people. Everybody who wants a vaccine should have one. But the politics of it is interesting, too, because, you know, when he announced that he's going to engage the CDC to open these uh, sites like at Valencia West Campus, uh, you know, DeSantis called them, you know, camps. We're not going to participate in the vaccination camps, you know, alluding to something that was militaristic and negative. And then he's, uh, you know, he reached out and said, okay, we'll give the shots to Holocaust survivors. Should they get them? Yes, they're all, they absolutely should get them. We'll give them to the people who fought at Bay of Pigs. Should they get them if they're qualified with age? Absolutely. And then he had this very high-end Republican district over in Manatee County where mm-hmm. he came in, but you couldn't come in from the outside, so it was restricted to them. So he's politicizing the whole – the vaccine cam- campaign has now become a political campaign for him. The next he's going to divide up the blue and red counties and decided that the red counties get the vaccinations next. So he's really politicized this. And you see nationally, because he's got a lot of Fox coverage on this, He's trying to go ahead and drive a wedge between himself and the administration, which is interesting because you would think that you might want to just say, hey, we don't agree on most issues. But by the, by the same token, I am the governor of one of the largest states in the country. We do need help from the federal government, whether it's vaccinations, economic development, labor, Medicaid, whatever it is. Can we work on those issues? But when you just got spit on the foot of the person who's the president of the United States gratuitously, I think it's not good for the citizens of the state of Florida. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit too about the uh, 2021 legislative session set to begin next week. Governor DeSantis has a pretty ambitious budget lined up for this. Um, there's more than $4 billion extra dollars in it compared to last year. That's in spite of the pandemic. In, in fact, because of the pandemic, because the governor points out that a lot of that is pandemic relief. Uh, Frank Torres, what kind of a task do lawmakers have on their hands to you know, reconcile this budget and get something passed at the end of the two-month legislative session? Well, there's always a lot of pressure and there's always a lot of uh, drama up in Tallahassee. You know, it's given the way that we do things up here, and Dick would certainly know this, it's a race against the clock to try to get as much done as possible, and everybody's, you know, sort of tugging at the levers, trying to get their particular legislation passed, and I think we're just going to see a sprint highlighted by this mandatory and necessary urgency to get some pandemic relief out there. But we might also see a lot of things, you know, fall to the wayside, a lot of important priorities involving, you know, education and housing that might have to go Mm -hmm. to the back burner just because there simply isn't a lot of time. Of course, you never rule it out, but I certainly wouldn't rule out a special session this year to get this stuff done because you know that next year we're right back in election season and they're going to try to make that session as short as possible. So, Expect them to try to cram as many issues as possible just so they uh, can get their priorities done and so that they don't have to do it next year when a lot of them are up for re-election. Uh, Dick Batchel, you've, you've uh, obviously got a, a, an interest in, in some issues that you've, you've 
been outspoken on too, like housing, for example. Um, when you look at this budget, are you a little bit worried about what might be cut from it if you're talking about some of those essential things, affordable housing, et cetera? I mean, as you pointed out, you know, the budget is substantially higher than it was last year. And there is a what the legislature has created, the rated DAPA, which is a reserve, which I, they probably won't touch even though there's several billion dollars sitting in that fund because they're economic conservatives. And they've, they've actually now gone to a kind of a zero-based budgeting review of all the programs. But uh, it, the status is rewarded by the CARES Act money. That's why he has the latitude mm-hmm. to propose a budget $4 billion over last year. Now, keep in mind, the first two years as he was governor, he proposed fully funding the Sadowski funds, which are the affordable housing funds. And he proposed it, uh, full funding both times. And, of course, the legislature cut money out the last time, but it still got more money than, than any previous year. So I have not looked to see if the governor is proposing full funding the Sadowski funds, but notwithstanding his proposal – as Frank alluded to, when the when the cutting starts, you know everybody needs to hide because I don't think there's going to be any new money, any new programs. If you're in a town that's trying to fund a new program, I think you're just, you know, you're just wasting your time hmm. uh, because I think they're going to they, they're going to have to cut places, notwithstanding the CARES Act money. I'm afraid affordable housing, the Sadowski funds, might even get cut, even though during a pandemic, when you're now getting ready to lift the moratorium on evictions. It becomes more dire consequences for those people who become homeless tomorrow that are not homeless today. So the Zadowski funds are even more important. One question I have is, you know, if now is not a rainy day to get your hands on some of that rainy day fund money, when is? Like, when would be a good time to use that money? I have one opinion, and the legislature has another one. <laughs> so I think you go into the rainy day fund now, and, and, and if you look at all the economists, most of them are saying, that post-pandemic, we can have a resurgence in the economy and almost get back up to par where we were so you can anticipate growth in the economy. So based on that anticipation, your economic revenue estimated conference could say we could take some money out of the reserve. But again, the legislature, the leadership is, and the governor are pretty conservative as far as fiscal concerns. So I don't see them raiding the rainy day fund. Frank, your thoughts on that? One thing we, we, we've only mentioned you know, briefly the push of influence here. Every legislator has their priorities. They're all getting tugged at in different ways by the, you know, the lobbying corps out there. And that tends to shake out things the way uh, the money gets moved around. But I do agree with, um, obviously, the consensus of the economists. We will see a resurgence after this pandemic. I think everybody's waiting you know, to get out of their house and, and try to get back to some sense of normal. So I think if you're going to go for uh, – any sort of measures that would uh, increase relief, so speed up relief, I think you go for it, and we'll see what they have to do. Well, um, we've been speaking with Frank Torres, Republican political analyst. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. Also joined by Dick Batchelor. He's a former Democratic state lawmaker, also the founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Dick, thanks as well. Thank you for your time. Enjoyed it. Still to come, we'll ask State Senator Joe Gruders, the chair of the Florida Republican Party, what it means to bring CPAC to Florida and about his involvement in a Republican Party committee on election integrity. Stay with us. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Big tech, election integrity and freedom of choice over vaccinations. These are some of the issues Sarasota Senator and State Republican Party Chair Joe Gruders has his name attached to this year. I spoke to Gruders on the eve of the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, at the Orange County Convention Centre. It runs Thursday through the weekend. Well, Senator Gruders, thank you so much for joining me. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me on today. I wanted to um, start by asking you about uh, the Conservative Political Action Conference. What does it mean for Florida to host CPAC this year? Well, listen, it's more exciting stuff for Florida. Obviously, we delivered big for the president, and and Republicans won up and down the ballot. This is a Republican state. Uh, We increased our margin threefold for the president this, this past cycle. We won two new congressional seats, one state Senate seat, five state House seats. We crushed the Democrats on the ground. We crushed them in voter registration, and we crushed them in turnout. And this is just a continuation, of course, the president after the election coming back home to his home state. Uh, where we're obviously welcoming him, and then uh, to have CPAC kick us off, kick this uh, uh, political season off uh, right here in Orlando in our backyard. It's uh, exciting because what we're going to do is we're going to start the unification process of bringing together uh, the entire party so we could be uh, united in our efforts uh, to win in the 2022 cycle, because that's what it's all about. Listen, election ha- elections have consequ- consequences. The Democrats control everything, and it requires us to come together as a party to unite so we can uh, offset the gains that these guys have recently made because you could, the, 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 the policies that they're pushing, the executive actions that the, uh, President Biden has already undertaken, it uh, uh, completely undermines the, the system and supports the swamp, and uh, we're going to have to go up there and, and drain it again in 2022. Well, let me ask about the Republican Party. I mean, do you do you feel like there are some fractures that you have to try and fix? And, and I'm wondering if you're kind of seeing a bit of a difference between the Republican Party in general nationwide and the Florida Republicans, because as you pointed out, um, Republicans in, in the state of Florida did pretty well in 2020. Yeah, Florida is the gold standard, not only for elections, but for party unity moving forward. And yeah, there, there are some uh, uh, fractions out there within the base and within the party organization and structure. And that's what we have to do as a party is uh, be the bridge to link everybody back up. And, and because we need a united uh, uh, approach as we head into that 2022 cycle, it's not going to be easy. The, the, uh, some of the races are going to be very difficult. And, uh, and obviously with the uh, Democrats control, controlling the executive branch in both the Senate and the House, uh, they have the advantage, uh, 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 and they're going to have a, a financial advantage as well. And so we need to be together. Uh, I think the CPAC event here in or- Orlando is the first step of bringing uh, different people together. And listen, I think that we're going to be uh, organized. I think Ronna McDaniel is going to do a great job. I think we're doing everything we need to do as a party because uh, uh, we're going to go back to the basics and and uh, we did well in the 2022 cycle, but we're going to in the 2020 cycle, but we're going to have to do a lot better uh, to make sure we take back at least uh, either the House or the Senate or both. I wanted to ask too a little bit about uh, election integrity. You're part of that Republican Party committee. What are you looking for exactly? Like, what is your role going to be with that? Well, listen, it's uh, I'm the newly elected chairman of the uh, uh, Republican Party's uh, election integrity committee for the for the country. And uh, listen, the first and foremost, we got to figure out what the problems were in 2020, uh, what happened, why did it happen? Uh, we have to, to then go out and figure out how we can move forward in a way where we can establish, you know, credibility into the system. There's a lot of people that believe that there was fraud in the system and that, 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 uh, but, but most, I mean, I, I have to point out that most elections officials up and down the country have said it was actually a pretty smoothly run election. I mean, down to 
uh, you know, some of the former officials at, at the uh, federal level who kind of oversaw the security, you know, the cybersecurity aspects of the election, uh, elections officials in states that the president both won and lost have said it was a, a pretty smoothly run election. And if you look at what happened here in Florida, um, no major problems to report. So, I mean, are there really issues? We got it right in Florida. Florida is no question. We're the gold standard, and we should be the model for everybody to follow. Mm-hmm. We got all of our votes, and listen, it wasn't done without uh, some pain over the years, but since 2020, the election versus Bush versus Gore, that first election controversy here in Florida, which made us somewhat the laughing stock with the hanging chads, sure. and there was a couple of other close races that, mm-hmm. that made our legislative the legislative process, we went and tightened the screws. And then, of course, when Governor Ron DeSantis came into office, he replaced the incompetent uh, the supervisors. And so you have 67 independently elected supervisor of elections here in Florida in a state with 21 and a half million people, as diverse as we are with all these different Republicans and Democrats running these, their own independent shops. They got the job done and they did it right. And the fact that there is so much un- uncertainty at the national level and people uh, having the que- questioning the, the integrity of the system, that's the, a problem within itself. People have no problem questioning the integrity of the Florida election. Everybody says it went well. It, it did go well. Why can't right. we have those same assurances nationwide so that we can eliminate any of the uh, of the uncertainty that does exist? And we could do that with simple solutions, start counting the absentee ballots way ahead of time, having the, you know, the like here in Florida, the 14 days of early voting. My whole goal is to make it as easy as possible to vote, but as hard as possible to cheat. We can't, uh, uh, nobody should accept on the right or, or the left uh, uh, anything other than uh, a system like we have here in Florida, because we want the credibility in the system. We want a safe and secure election, and we want everybody to have the full faith and confidence in an election gone right, and uh, and that will eliminate any type of shenanigans uh, or, or or uncertainty that exists. And as a country, we'll all be much better off. And so that's the goal that I've set. 2022 is going to be the the targeted date. Where there's obviously going to be certain states that are more important than others as we that look at the passing, you know, some type of model type legislation. But it, it's with the sole purpose of bringing back. Uh, the credibility that we need, because at the end of the day, the integrity in the system uh, is what we need. And, and voters and our citizens need to have the confidence uh, that these elections are run uh, uh, correctly and smoothly. And just like what you said, Florida did it right. And so right. Florida should be the model for the rest of the country. Can't some of the, the blame be laid for the, the questions over the election be laid at the feet of the former President Donald Trump, who was raising questions about states, which he lost? I mean, isn't that part of the problem there? There, there, there were issues in the numerous states uh, that have never come out to the public fully because people don't want to look at them. All the court cases that were lost were due to a technicality, not because of uh, the, 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 the facts of the case were reviewed. And it, everything goes back to credibility. And, and, and for mm-hmm. me, my role in the Election Integrity Committee is to look forward. Listen, we're not changing what happened in November. We can sure. change the, 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 the people's perceptions of what will happen in the 2022 cycle. And like I said, Florida's diverse. We're massive, 21 and a half million. We got it right. Nobody's complaining. Democrats mm. and Republicans all came together. There's no reason right. why we can't have a similar type system ac- across, ac- across the country. 
specifically in the states where, you know, where we have Republicans in control. This is not about any type of this is not about anything other than making sure that everybody who has a vote votes and making it as easy as possible to vote, hard as possible to achieve. That's the line. And, uh, and, and my focus and efforts over the next couple of months as we bring all the Republican groups together to coordinate and help uh, uh, put together the, the, the plan uh, is to uh, uh, ensure exactly that. Uh, nobody's complaining that I've heard, at least, about how Florida's elections are run, but there are some bills in the offing which may you know, take a different look at how elections are run, specifically one um, filed by uh, Senator Dennis Baxley in North Central Florida, which kind of looks at voting by mail. I mean, if things were run so smoothly in Florida, is there a need for legislation like that? Is that kind of well, listen, um, you, superfluous? Just like we've continuing to we've, we've tightened the screws over the last 20 years to make the election uh, better, the election process better and better in Florida, we could always do better. And what some of the proposals that the governor has come out with recently is think of how secure voting is in person. You go show your ID, you go vote, you're, it, it, everything's protected, you're, you're uh, there's all these things that are prohibited from being placed in the voting cycle. Uh, that's somewhat we're going to do with, in terms of ballot harvesting, eliminating eliminating that, eliminating the the non-observed uh, 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 drop boxes. Uh, uh, here in Sarasota, my community, they only have them out from nine to five, and they're always manned. But the ballot harvesting is a bad idea. Having outside groups come in to certain areas. Uh, and, and, and pay for uh, electioneering type things. That's a bad idea. Uh, we don't want the corporate special interests coming into any area and, uh, and, and, and helping by paying for uh, electioneering efforts. That's a bad idea. And I'm glad the governor is willing to get rid of that. Uh, we have such a transient community overall. It does make sense that, listen, I'm all for, I want to make it as easy as possible to vote. So by all means, vote absentee, vote early. I'm even in favor of having mega early voting sites that are open, you know, for 30 days in a couple spots around the community. So everybody has even more opportunities if that was the case. Uh, but it does make and, and we we saw some of that in, in the lead yeah. up to 2020, right? Yeah. I mean, especially here in Orlando, yeah. I'm thinking the Amway Center was one of those sites. Yeah, it was fan- it, those type of places are fantastic. What we don't want, though, is you don't want people who are moving all the time to be getting sent absentee ballots three, four years after they requested it. And I think the, the idea is every time you want an absentee ballot, you call, and if you say you want it for the entire cycle, so which could be three, four, five elections, uh, you should be able to get that done. But you should not be able to request absentee ballots, you know, three, four years uh, uh, away uh, because, the, the you know, people move all the time, and we need to make sure we have an accurate count of who our voters are where they live, because we have to make sure everybody gets the right ballot and everything is done accurately. This is all about bringing credibility to the overall system and making sure that uh, uh, we have the full faith and confidence of the people that we represent. I wanted to just ask a couple of questions, if I could, about um, the the legislative session, which is just around the corner. Uh, one of the bills you're co-sponsoring this year does take aim at big tech firms, specifically would stop state and local government doing business with those firms. I'm wondering, I mean, where does that issue sit for you in the level of importance? Would you say it's maybe more important than, say, getting you know COVID relief, COVID-19 relief uh, up and no, running no, I, and, I said, and getting economy firing again on all cylinders? 
Yeah, and I appreciate that question. The most important issue is obviously the budget, dealing with the ramifications of COVID-19, making uh-huh. sure people can can cope and providing whatever relief we can to the families and, and helping businesses as they continue to struggle to try to make it, making our state the number one place to do business so we can get the, the best, most high-paying jobs we possibly can for Florida's families. Because I think when you are able to, to have a high-paying job, you're a much better provider. And when you have better providers, overall families are happier and do better. Uh, but yes, when it comes to the, the, I believe that some of these tech companies act as the public square. When you have hundreds of millions of subscribers mm-hmm. talking, that's the same thing to me in my eyes as standing on a street corner. And I think that the, the, the first the amendment is uh, important. I think we need to protect yep. the freedom of speech, uh, even sometimes when it's speech that you don't agree with. And uh, and so, yes, not they shouldn't receive a pass all the time. And also in terms of data, data privacy issues, to me, it's Mm -hmm. important that as individuals, we have the ability to 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 understand and know what companies have on us and to be able to allow them to either sell that data or not. But we should be able to understand what they have on each individual and you decide whether or not they should be able to sell it. To outside groups because data is being bought and sold all the time and they have a lot of information on each of us and people will be shocked at what they have uh, 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 on your listeners at home. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you real quick too if I could about vaccinations I mean you've been fairly outspoken about the idea of people being given the freedom to choose whether to get vaccinated or not. I'm, I'm wondering though if and when you know vaccine becomes available are you going to be lining up to get a shot? Well, I'm 43 years old, so I don't think I'm on any list uh, anytime soon. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I want everybody that's eligible to go out there and get a vaccine. I think it's important that we have as many people as possible to get vaccinated. But I've talked to numerous people who have had adverse reactions to vaccines and who have had, uh, for whatever reason, don't want to take a vaccine. And for those people, you know, my goal and what my bill did is I want to be able to prevent discrimination on those who decide not to have the vaccine uh, in terms of their everyday life and, 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 and whether it be going to uh, the shopping center or going to a restaurant. Uh, I'm not a favor of having people show any type of uh, medical ID or papers uh, to do anything. You know, we it, it over the years, there's been numerous discussions on whether or not you should have to show driver's license for different things getting pulled mm-hmm. over every everything you could possibly imagine. And what, what I about voting do, though? What about voting? It, 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 certainly we should have, not only do I think we should have voter ID, I think we should take it and, and potentially even do uh, fingerprints because it's so mm-hmm. important, but certainly uh, the, the, I don't want anybody to be denied basic services as a result of their uh, preference to, 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 to get this COVID-19. Now I encourage everybody to get it. I think they should get it. I'm uh, fully in favor of, uh, and I've advocated for additional vaccines and locations in mm-hmm. my community, which the governor has granted and have, has come down a couple of times. And we're very fortunate and grateful. We have a lot of seniors. Uh, but that being said, you shouldn't be uh, unfairly uh, uh, punished if you decide uh, it, 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 for whatever reason, including uh, uh, your own individual health issues as a result of other adverse reactions that uh, 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 you should have some protection. Senator Joe Gruders, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks so much. 
Up next, Democratic State Representative Anna Eskamani is also outspoken on elections, but takes a very different tack from Senator Gruders and his colleagues in the Republican Party. We'll talk to the Orlando area lawmaker about that and other issues, including a push to build a ground game for Democratic candidates in upcoming elections. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. State Representative Anna Eskamani's name has been floated as a potential gubernatorial candidate. The Orlando area Democrat is non-committal on if and when she'll declare her candidacy, but she's spoken out on the need for her party to course correct to start winning elections, and she's channeling the kind of movement that Stacey Abrams adopted in Georgia. Anna Eskamani joins me to talk about this and more, including her legislative priorities for 2021. Anna Eskamani joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Matt. Well, let's talk a little bit about this For the People Act. Uh, Tell me more about it. What would it do? So this is a piece of legislation introduced in Congress. Um, It is a sweeping reform package to strengthen our democracy by getting big money out of politics, expanding the right to vote, and trying to enhance the protections for every person's right to vote, as we have seen states, including states like Florida, uh, try to actually make it more difficult to access the polls. Um, Together with this legislation at a national level, we can create a democracy that represents, reflects, and responds to the needs of every person. So I I want to ask then, I guess, why do you think it's important for a state lawmaker like yourself to um, be pushing for this bill, which is at the congressional level? Local politics matter. And as a state official, I get to witness not only what's happening in my neighborhoods, at polling locations and in, a, and in a person's efficacy to actually get to the polls and to vote, but I also get to witness what's happening in the legislature at a state level. And the reality is our, our governor has every intention to go backwards when it comes to expanding the right to vote, despite the fact that Florida had absolutely no cases of election fraud. Um, the governor bragged about how good we managed the 2020 election cycle. Um, He has now introduced a flurry of bills to completely uh, uh, roll back access to vote by mail, um, to put into place um, these restrictions that are not even an issue in Florida, like ballot harvesting, which doesn't happen here, but he's pretending like it does. So we see our state officials go in the opposite direction of ensuring access to the polls. Meanwhile, we have an opportunity at a federal level um, to make sure that that protections are put into place and money is taken out of politics so that democracy can actually function for every person. I'm very critical of money in politics. Um, I tried to model the the behavior of not accepting corporate funds. At the end of the day, corporate influence and campaign finance reform really has to happen at a national level. And and this congressional bill can help fix that as well. Let me ask you then about the the bills you mentioned, I mean, one piece of legislation in particular uh, at the state level from um, Senator Dennis Baxley, I mean, that, that sort of is emblematic of that push from the other side of the aisle to take a closer look at least at voting by mail. Um, is there something legislatively that you or other Democratic lawmakers would or will be doing about that? So many of my colleagues for the past two, now three years I've been in office, have been pursuing efforts to ensure that there is access to the polls and that our local supervisor elections have the dollars necessary to also ensure secure elections that are not infiltrated or influenced by outside forces. Um, With that said, 
uh, Representative Geraldine Thompson has really led our caucus in filing a lot of those election reform bills, you know, whether it's same day voter registration, um, actually changing the rules around the postmark date of vote by mail ballots. That, that has been a major issue of concern where folks are mailing in the ballot within the timeline, but it's getting to the SOE postmarked correctly, but post the date they're due. And so we've been looking at solutions to try to make sure that polls are more accessible and will continue on that front. Um, meanwhile, my colleagues have pursued making it harder for returning citizens to vote. And now they're going after vote by mail with this bill by Senator Baxley, which would require folks to apply for vote by mail every single time versus today where you can, you can request for upcoming elections. The reason why this is so important is that so many of our folks that rely on vote by mail are going to be seniors and, and their ability to apply every single year is going to be different than those that have more access to a computer or, or, or just more of an access to, to, to these due dates. You know, we're intentionally creating barriers for those that have more efficacy compared to those that don't. And we shouldn't be pursuing efforts to make voting harder. A functioning democracy is key to elected accountability. We want to make sure that we're making our, our work more acceptable to people. And if folks don't like what they see, then they can vote us out or they can keep us. But by making voting less accessible, we're intentionally trying to um, disconnect people from the process. And that's not okay. If it's um, if it's something that people don't want, why is there so much money in politics? I mean, it seems like that um, you know that dam is going to be hard to rebuild, or that levy is going to be hard to rebuild. It's hard to rebuild because so many politicians are bought up by the influential forces that don't want to change, right? But but you you talk to everyday people, um, and there's alignment that money in politics is a problem. Every politician is. Um, is seen as corrupt in the eyes of so many people who don't vote because they don't think their vote matters. And this type of legislation would completely reverse that notion because it will set an even playing field where an everyday person will have just as much influence in the process compared to uh, as someone who has been buying their influence uh, for, for, for generations now. And so um, the, the popular opinion is our favor, but of course, when you're in Congress, um, money has infiltrated the system so much. Same thing with the state legislature, that it's hard to cut through that that those forces. And with the US Supreme Court decision around uh, um, Citizens United, it becomes even more important for Congress to take some leadership steps, at least trying to rein back some of this influence. And, and that's what the For the People Act would do. Thinking about um, this issue of money and politics and more specifically tax breaks, you've had some support from, I guess some might say, an unexpected source on, on a bill that you filed with co-sponsorship with uh, State Representative Anthony Sabatini, who on the face of it, I think you would probably not share many politics with, but this is the uh, the bill to end the urban high crime job tax credit program. Tell me a little more about the bill and how you got the support of Representative Sabatini on that. Well, anything is possible in 2021, that is for sure. So we have filed legislation, as you mentioned, um, to uh, repeal a tax break program that was supposed to help generate jobs in high crime areas instead has been exploited by companies like Universal Studios, Publix, and Walmart uh, with very little demonstration and job creation in these areas, and yet they're getting millions of dollars in this state tax break. So our repealer bill would, would completely eliminate that program, put that money back in the state coffers, then actually go to everyday people who need it or go to reducing crime, 
And uh, Representative Sambatini co-sponsored the bill because he shares a, um, a, a solidarity on this notion that tax taxpayer dollars need to be wisely spent. And when we're taking money away from your pocket, we want to make sure that it's going in a direction that actually could improve your life. And hmm. for far too long, corporations have set the agenda. Even this legislative session, in the middle of a pandemic, corporations in the state legislature will be pushing for more tax breaks. One of the things you've been pretty outspoken on over the last 12 months, uh, 11 months or so, during the pandemic is the need for people to get access to uh, you know, unemployment benefits, for that whole system to be revamped. I mean, there have been a lot of people sort of looking at that from the governor on down saying this system hasn't really worked. Tell me about what you're hoping to get done with regards to that, this legislative session. Yeah, I appreciate that question. We have supported more than 20,000 Floridians with their unemployment claims throughout 2020 and into today. And our office phones keep ringing for folks that are waiting for weeks of benefits or locked accounts or pending status, folks who have now become homeless because of of DOs incompetence. And so we have filed an omnibus legislation to completely modernize the unemployment system, increasing the weekly benefit amount, increasing the amount of weeks available, putting to place an ombudsman, playing oversight role of DO, um, uh, automatically waiving the worst search requirement waiver in cases of emergency, which is set to expire this month unless the governor extends it again. So really trying to build more certainty into the system and also make sure the system actually works. With that said, our bill has been assigned four committee stops, which is a pretty long journey to get to the House floor. So, um, so wait, if you have more committee stops, that there's more chance it could hit a road bump along the way? Correct. Uh, folks should know the legislative session is only 60 days long. So mm-hmm. uh, the more committee stops assigned to your bill by the Speaker's office, then, then the harder it is to get it through. Now, with that said, I think part of our frustration is not just focused on our bill and the, the lack of uh, Republican interest in doing something about unemployment, but there hasn't even been one hearing about unemployment in the five weeks of pre-session meetings we've had. Not one hearing, not one discussion focused on the unemployment system in the Republican majority legislature, despite the fact that many of my Republican colleagues campaigned on fixing the unemployment system. Now, with that said, I've spoken to the chairman of, of my bill's first stop, and, and he did express agreement with some of our areas of concern, especially around a lack of accountability with DEO and the fact that Floridians in many cases have waited weeks to get a message back from DEO um, to access their benefits. And so um, I made a commitment to the chairman that if incremental change is what we're gonna do this session, let's let, let, let the people of Florida be a part of that, let our office be part of that, and let's, let's push forward some improvements, but, but candidly, even that hasn't happened yet. So um, if you're someone who wants to see fixes in the unemployment system, I definitely encourage you to contact your state lawmaker because at this point, there has been zero action on this issue. While my phone and my office continues to ring off the hook and folks are, are still in desperate need of support. You mentioned the increase in unemployment benefits. Do you really think your colleagues on the other side of the aisle are going to go for that aspect of the bill? That's probably the one that is most contentious in the chamber only because of the influence of big business, but is the most popular in the in our neighborhoods. Hmm. Remember, Florida has one of the lowest weekly benefit amounts in the country at $275 a week. And the average that folks bought by for is only $250. 
And that's available on a sliding scale of 12 weeks to now 19 weeks. Other, other states have programs with a national average of 26 weeks. And Florida employers only pay $50 a year per employer on, per employee on average into the trust fund when the national average is $277 per employee per year. So it's pretty clear that we have completely broken the unemployment system on purpose in 2011 to meet the needs of the biggest businesses who lobbied for that reform under Governor, now Senator Rick Scott. And if we really want to champion workers' safety nets and, and meet the needs of our workers while balancing the priorities of business, then finding a happy medium of what a weekly benefit amount looks like for 2021 is the right thing to do. And, and so we're pushing for those changes, but it's definitely one of the harder, one of the harder policy changes to, to persuade my Republican colleagues on. Uh, real quick, I wanted to just touch on a couple of other uh, pieces of legislation with your name attached. Um, one of them is uh, concerning interstate commerce and the other one around food delivery fees. Um, food delivery, yeah. I, I feel like that issue has become kind of more pressing <laughs> over the last 11 months, right, during the pandemic. Is that sort of how that bill came about? Yes, absolutely. I mean, majority of our bills filed this session are in response to COVID-19 because I do think as lawmakers, that should be our biggest focus is responding to the pandemic. And our, 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 our newly filed bill around food delivery systems actually came to us from our small businesses in District 47. Um, many small businesses have, have shared their concerns that when they use food apps like Uber or Postmates and others, uh, that they're getting a 30% service charge just to deliver food on these apps, which has led them to then increase their prices by 30%, which is then impacting their ability to sell things to their customers. Um, at the end of the day, this is money that they're losing and it's money that Florida is losing because it's the out-of-state tech companies who get that extra money they're charging. And so what our bill does is in a state of declared emergency, it sets caps on what these big tech companies can do and how much they charge our small businesses. And so it's essentially a, a, a focus on cases of emergency to say that you cannot exploit an emergency to, to pay your shareholders, that that money needs to stay with our small businesses and stay in Florida. Um, the other bill that we have filed around an interstate compact is designed to end corporate giveaways by essentially having multiple states sign on to a truce that we will no longer engage in tax incentive programs to try to relocate headquarters or corporations from one state to the other. This is a, a race to the bottom. Economists call it the prisoner's dilemma, where we each think we have to play this game of corporate subsidies and incentives because other states are doing it. If we were able to build a compact across the country to say, we're not going to play this game, if you're not going to play this game, our hope is that we can then use that money on improving quality of life so we can compete on good schools, on good transportation, on clean air, clean water, compete on these aspects that every person benefits from versus giving money away to corporations who sometimes are not even fulfilling the job requirements we've asked them to fulfill. And there's been too many examples in Florida of these corporate incentive programs blowing up in our face. And so um, interstate compact, I do think is one of the only ways to actually successfully do this because it's a, it's a, it's a commitment made by multiple states to stop playing this game. 
We talked to you on election night, Anna Eskamani, about a potential run for governor. When is the right time to make that decision, do you think? <laughs> Exciting questions. We've actually launched today our political committee focused on expanding Florida's electorate and registering 25,000 new voters in 2021. Candidly, um, I don't know if any Democrat can win in 2022 unless we invest in some serious local power building and take a page out of Stacey Abrams' playbook. And so though I have no commitment to run for governor at this time, I am focused on building local power and we've already raised $60,000 towards this, this political effort. Uh, to register new voters in the Sunshine State. And I'm really excited to be leading that role um, and, and do whatever I can to get Florida into the right direction. So what I'm hearing is that even if you're not a candidate yourself, you're going to be fairly involved in trying to get a Democrat elected governor in a couple of years. 100%. But also looking at 2022 and beyond. You know, when you talk to leaders like Stacey Abrams in Georgia or even Beto O'Rourke in Texas, their efforts to to push their states into a, a more prosperous, prosperous path is one that takes time. And so I do think we have to look at an eight to 10 year strategy for Florida. For far too long, Democrats have taken communities for granted. Democrats have drawn assumptions that if you are of a certain gender, of a certain class, of a certain cultural identity, you will vote for them. That is not how we are supposed to build power. We cannot be transactional in how we talk to our voters. We must be transformational in talking to our constituents. And, hmm. and our efforts is to look at a long-term strategy for building local power from the ground up. And we have launched those initiatives this week and are in the process of, of raising funds so that when I get to session, we can start spending those dollars on on the ground training and voter registration opportunities versus um, continuously just hoping that things will be different in Florida. Speaking of political power, there's, of course, this week, the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference happening right here in Orlando. Um, are you going to be paying attention to that to see what some of the high-profile members of the Republican Party are saying, whether they're in the state of Florida or elsewhere? You know, I think all of us should be keeping an eye on it, especially when it comes to just the thoughts of the spread of COVID-19 and, and doing what we can to make sure that CDC safety standard guidelines are followed um, since they're in Central Florida. Um, you know, President, former President Trump is scheduled to speak. And I think that does further elevate the fact that though Trump is gone, Trumpism is here to stay. And we have to be very, very intentional in, in giving Floridians an alternative away from, away from that viewpoint and ideology of the world, which is very divisive, and to instead focus on what we can actually accomplish together. Well, Anna Eskamani, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health. Production assistance for this week's show from Clarissa Moon. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're online at wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 